It's Monday, August 16th, and we have Chef Ida with Africana on Main, a sad closing for Richmond and tomatoes. Welcome to Eat It, Virginia. Hello and welcome to Eat It, Virginia. My name is Scott Lides and I am joined as always by my friend, my friend, Roby Martin. Roby, today on the show, Chef Ida, such a lovely person. I hear you got reprimanded though while you were there. I got in trouble. I, I, I did it wrong. I did it wrong. There's a scene <laughs> in the movie Mr. Mom, which I know you're not familiar with, but... Absolutely not. <laughs> Michael Keaton is dropping off his kids at school and he's doing it wrong. And he gets all the moms yelling at him, you're doing it wrong. That's how I felt when I was in her restaurant. Yeah, wait to hear what she told you. Let's get to the interview. Other than that one little moment when she yelled at me, a beautiful woman, a beautiful restaurant and some beautiful food. I think that the moment when she yelled at you is perfect, actually. <laughs> so we're, we're good. How has your last couple of days been? I haven't seen you in a while. Yes, I know. It's because you've been traversing the country. So I have sadness. There's a four lease sign at Mama Zoo's. I saw that. What is that? What are the details there? Do you know? No, unsurprisingly, nobody can find Ed Visayo, which you know, he's so, so ver- verbose with media. So I can totally understand how it's just so everyone's so flabbergasted that he's not talking. Um, so all we know is that it's for lease. And I actually, people are like, it's, I know you want to talk, but hold on, Scott. People are like, it's closed, it's closed. But maybe, maybe it's moving. What gives you that impression? Well, the online website says temporarily closed. The online website? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's like a, a jumbo large. <laughs> like that's what you don't understand what I'm saying? But I'm serious, it does. It says temporarily closed. And if anybody knows Ed, He's really not a mince the words type of guy. So maybe he really means that it's temporarily closed. So this restaurant is on the pinnacle. Whenever we've, we've, inter- we've been interviewing chefs for me for two years now, you for much longer. And whenever we ask them where they like to eat in town, this restaurant always seems to be the first or second or third restaurant they mentioned. What, what made this restaurant such a experience? I'll, I'll use that word. It's just really damn good food. Really damn good Italian food. Served with little flourish. And I'm sure everybody will say the service sucks, but it has never been bad. Um, They do have a doorman that's kind of like the soup Nazi from Seinfeld, but he's also the sweetest human alive. Um, I don't know. It's just got a ton of history. I mean, if you got there at a good day, I can tell you one story that probably is going to shine a, not a very nice light on me, but surprise, that's fine. Um, I one time had too much to drink and instead of letting me drive home, Ed sat me at the counter and made me grate with one of those hand graters, Parmesan cheese. Oh, great, the verb grate. No, I thought you were using an yes. adjective, like made me grate spaghetti or made me grate meatballs. No, no, <laughs> I had good food before he sat me at the counter and said he- the, the bottle of red wine that you and your friend your friend only had a smidge of and you had most of is meaning you are not going to get to drive home. So here is some cheese. Here's the hand grater. Here is a cup of coffee. Sit down. <laughs> cheese and coffee and red wine. Those are three of my favorite things in the whole world. See, so now you know why the restaurant's so great because he pairs so many good flavors together. Something exciting to talk about today, Roby, in addition to all this restaurant news, we have a new sponsor for this podcast. A new sponsor? Who is it, Scott? Funny you should ask, Roby. It's Farmer's Focus, delivering organic chicken to households around Virginia. You know that you can get that at Lidl? I did not know that, but let's talk to the CEO and founding farmer right now, and he'll give us all the details. So we don't often get to talk about chicken, Scott, but I'm kind of, I'm, I'm into chicken lately. I don't know about you, and we're lucky we're into chicken because we have corn heat wool from Farmer Focus, he likes to be called the founding farmer, which I'm pretty excited about because I've never had a founding farmer on the podcast. Can we talk about chickens, Corwin? Absolutely. We're ready to talk about chickens. In a 
cool situation. I have been eating your chicken since Lidl came to Richmond. Well, I am very proud to hear that. And thank you for the support. That's wonderful. I'd love to tell the listeners who we are and uh, what we do, because I don't answer a little bit of why it's the best chicken. Our company is a 100% organic and certified humane uh, chicken company. Uh, and we to produce chicken. We have a very unique mission to promote and protect generational family farms. You say, why is our mission to promote and protect generational family farms? Is because of the pressure that farms have felt with the consolidation in the industry that has uh, been the challenge for farms to be viable and sustainable. So out of, out of a result of how we empower our farmers through our model and how we partner with them that allows ownership in the process to allow farms to be sustainable and viable and empower farmers to farm the right way. A result has been a lot of incredible feedback on how our chicken tastes. What is the right way to farm a chicken? That's a complex uh, question and I'm really not sure we have enough time to to cover (laughs) that today, but but farming organically is very important and, and the quality of the feed is just incredible. But if it wasn't grown in the field or mined from the earth, it's not in the feed. And of course it's free of antibiotics and pesticides, herbicides and all that. You know, you have this practice, the, the more natural environment of the natural light uh, shining into barns and outdoor access where they, the chickens can go out and, and play around and eat the clover and peck the bugs and, and just enjoy a natural environment. And then to, uh, to not smother your farmers and allow them to have the authority to farm the way they believe is right for them, their family, and their animals is, is really important. And because uh, the company should not be in, in control of the little details of, of what that farm needs. You come from a, f- a family of farmers. How have things changed over the generations? Our family has farmed in the Shenandoah Valley for uh, six generations. So uh, very proud of that. Obviously, we've seen a lot of changes over the years, but I grew up in in farming. All four of my brothers and sisters are farmers. I'm a farmer. My my 16-year-old daughter is now the farm manager, and she runs my farm while I run the company. It's exciting. Well, I mean, what what more could you you want than to see your own daughter running your farm and you're running the company that's partnering with farmers and impacting the community? It's just a special cycle. In the last 50 to 60 years, the industry has experienced incredible consolidation, and specific to the poultry industry, it has integrated, meaning the integrator owns the supply chain the whole way through, including the animals and the birds in the farmer's barns. And that's where the farmer started to lose control when he no longer owned what was on his farm. And that's a key piece of what we give back to the farmer is that ownership. You know, growing up on the farm was obviously different than when I went on my own and started to run my own farm, because then I had to learn about all the economics of of running a farm and how I, how challenging it, it really is, you know, when your dad's running the farm and handling the finances, it's just everything just looks so beautiful and perfect. But then, you know, when you take over your own farm, you realize uh, you got to manage the finances and worry about the sustainability and where you're going to invest and expand your farm and, and all that. So when we realized that it really set in when I realized that my farm was not viable for the next generation and that I could not in good conscience recommend to pass my farm along to my children and expect them to carry that burden. 89.6% of all farms require all farm income to uh, just to, to survive. We, we felt that. And that's when uh, we knew that something had to be done. And I had no idea what I was going to do because everyone says, and it's true, farmers don't start chicken companies. So uh, how do you break through that and start a chicken company? So um, I studied the organic standards uh, one day, and I mean, the light bulb just went off. I knew that it would allow for uh, great chicken production with parameters of where they needed to be that would not allow for that, the issues that had come around with consolidation of the industry. And so uh, we decided to certify a farm organic, and we ordered 300 chickens. and 
we had no clue what we were going to do with these chickens. Not one of them was sold. And I remember telling one of my employees at the time, well, if we don't find a home for these chickens, at least we're going to eat really good for a long time. <laughs> but fortunately, we found uh, not just a home for those chickens, but a need to continue producing more. And then it didn't. Then soon we, we needed to, we knew we needed to create some processing capabilities. And that's what uh, led to uh, opening the processing facility. What do you think that ownership adds to the farmer? I mean, obviously they own it, but like I'm, I try, I'm trying to translate it to real life. And obviously, and I realize chickens aren't pets, but I have pets and I don't want somebody to tell me what to do with my animals. Do you feel like that's a translation? I mean, I realize it's a ridiculous translation because we don't need our pets, but. That was a great analogy. And when you lose that sense of ownership, you lose a certain sense of pride. And um, it's when you own the process, you have a, it's just, it self incentivizes a certain level of animal husbandry that you, you can't get when you're, you know, it's just like driving a rental car versus your own car. You know, you're, you're someone else's pet and your pet. Um, there was a great analogy there. Um, there's just a, a certain level of, of care and animal husbandry that's inspired to the process that you, you just can't get another model. If you're going to use that analogy in future interviews, you have to credit Roby, by the way. I will. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Over the years, um, it became about um, producing as many pounds as possible and the least square feet as possible at the least cost. And that's where not just the farmer got squeezed through the process, but the animals as well. And as the natural environment went away, then the need for antibiotics um, almost became a requirement. And that is what has been, has eroded. So um, our models like going back in time before that squeeze on the farmer and the animals, bringing back the natural environment where there's no antibiotics and you know, there's not even a need for it. Um, and, and they're happy. They're, they're jumping around. They have enrichments to play on, perches and things to hide under. Farming is just a lot of fun when your animals are happy. When we are in the grocery store and we see the farmer's focused chicken, where is that chicken actually coming from? Well, first it comes from one of our amazing uh, seven <laughs> farmer partners. And obviously they're, we're like the conduit between farmers and consumers. And that's what we want to be looked at. The farmers are the star of the show. We're not. We're, we're just helping the farmer's amazing product make it to grocery store shelves where people can enjoy it. And that's why we have the awesome feature on our packaging, on every package of the Meet Your Farmer feature that uses our four-letter farm ID uh, system so that you can trace back to the farmer that raised uh, that meal for you. And, you know, and it's really cool. Some consumers, they take the time to send us a message to thank that specific farmer and our farmers feel so empowered and inspired by the, the compliments they get from the consumers. So I can look at your package and see where my chicken came from? Absolutely. One of the trends that has happened in the industry is food has become very faceless. As, as you know, now three companies produce over 50% of the nation's chicken. You're not really sure when you go to the grocery store uh, sometimes even the company because it's private label or especially the farmer that raised uh, to raise that meal. So um, it's really an effort to bring that connection back and bring a face back to food. It's really just the, the love and the care that our farmers have coupled with the amazing quality of, of pure organic feed. It just don't taste the same. <laughs> I don't think it tastes, I've had it. I don't think it tastes the same either. I think it tastes we, we eat it in this house as if we eat chicken, period. So that's, and I, I love the fact that you're in two different spaces, or at least that I'm aware of in Richmond, you, we can get you at Fresh Market and at the Lidl. Are there other places that we can find your better tasting? Yeah. Treated uh, better chicken? Yeah. Farmer Focus also in uh, Kroger and Publix. And oh, uh, I didn't and, know that. Yeah. Huh. And the regional Costco's. What we really want consumers and people to know is that when, when you do support the Farmer Focus brand, um, please take the time to look up the family farm that you are directly supporting and uh, read about how it's changing lives. And um, it's just uh, such a blessing to be able to uh, have such an impact in our community.
That's awesome. Folks, if you're listening, you can learn more about Corwin and Farmers Focus in the podcast notes. We'll put a link to the website in there. Thank you for your time, sir. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Scott and Ruby. Take care. So, Ruby, you were going to host a chicken dinner for me. I was. Thank you. I was going to host it a chicken dinner. Am I not invited? No, but we are going to be on Virginia This Morning cooking chicken on August 23rd, which the place where we're going to be cooking chicken is essentially right out aside of where we work. So guess what? What's that? Chicken for you. That's the chicken dinner. I feel, I feel like you've kind of sandbagged that a little bit. I don't feel like that's what I was promised. Okay, fine. So here's the deal. I oh. will host a chicken dinner if you come and bring food by Bo oh. from Alewife. <laughs> okay, I'll see what I can do there. I don't know. What if I bring red wine, a cheese grater, and a big block of cheese? Would that work? No. Are you afraid of Bo? I have red wine and a cheese grater and a big block of cheese. Are you afraid to invite him to dinner? Of course not. Let's do it. Then have you, have gonna, you ever invited him to dinner? I'm going to text him right now. You know who I really want to dine with? Tell me, Scott. Who is I that? I want to dine with Chef Ida. Let's go there right now. I'm particularly excited about this interview, Scott. Um, I feel like this is kind of a, it's a staple in Richmond, this restaurant is. Um, we have, and now it's moved into a different location, maybe a larger location at the Pit and Peel space. We have Chef Mamusu with us of Africana, Maine. How are you? I'm wonderful this morning, wonderful, wonderful. Great. Well, welcome to Eat at Virginia. Um, we're excited to talk about how you got to Richmond and the move from one restaurant space to another because you were in the other restaurant space for quite some time. Yeah, 15 years. I was telling Ruby, I was lucky enough to go to your soft opening at the new location a few weeks ago. And uh, you were gracious enough to you know, open up the doors and had this beautiful buffet laid out of all this delicious food. And I put all the food on my plate and you came over to my table. I don't know if you remember this, but you yeah. said, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I, said, I said, what am I doing wrong? How could I be doing it wrong? And there was um, a spinach dish that I forgot to mix in with the rice. The rice, yes. yes. Can you tell us about, about that dish and maybe some of your favorite dishes that you've been serving over the years? Well, the spinach dish, like in Liberia, we have a, a vegetable that is called potato leaves. And it, uh, it's the leaves from the sweet potatoes, but it's similar to spinach in taste. So that particular uh, vegetable is kind of difficult to find in the United States. So we substitute that with spinach and we usually cook it with chicken, fish, uh, palm oil, African spices and all of that. But it tastes better when you eat it with rice. And so a lot of times people would just eat it as a vegetable. And I would say, no, this is a dish that goes with rice. And remember, uh, when you taste it with the rice, you're like, ah, now it tastes better. Yeah, because the spices are kind of concentrate. So the rice usually dilute the uh, spices and they kind of bring it out a little bit. So well, that's what that dish is. Needless to say, you know your food well because it was delicious without the rice, but it was even more delicious yeah, with the rice. Yeah. Have you found that more people uh, unfamiliar with your food are coming to the new location uh, on Main Street near VCU? Yes, yeah, so far we are six weeks in and we've been getting a lot of uh, new customers, especially in the neighborhood. They, we are being welcomed well in the neighborhood. And uh, of course the kids are not here yet. So we're still waiting for that. We're anticipating a uh, hurrah when they get here. They are not here yet. So uh, we still kind of watching uh, the menu to see how we're going to probably change it a little bit around. Because my goal is once I get the VCU kids in and they start coming regularly, I want them to detect to me, especially the international group they want. And by telling me what they want, I would be able to prepare because the international group in at VCU is huge. And they're coming from all over the world. So I wanted to be able, I know I can't cook dish for every country, but I want to come in the middle. And I want to try to do dishes in regions, like the West, the West part of Africa, dishes from there, north and stuff, as opposed to trying to cook 
Ethiopian food, South African food, that type of stuff is kind of difficult because you, I might not be able to find ingredients. But I can find dishes that five countries can eat or dishes that six countries can eat or familiar with it. And that way I would be able to come down the middle and be able to please everyone. Is it, is it a struggle to find ingredients right now? For yes. Some oh, yes, yes. Not only ingredients, but food, period. Uh, the restaurants are having a hard time with supplies right now and food have become extremely expensive. And because of the, the slow in bringing the supplies from the uh, industry, manufacturers and stuff like that. So prices are kind of hard. So we are altering some of our uh, menus now, you know, to kind of suit everyone because it's too expensive to prepare and we cannot raise our prices. So, you know, people will ask us if we have certain things and, and they know. And we say, well, you know, it's a little bit too expensive, so wait a little bit. And they understand, for those that shop, understand. So you are a buffet-style restaurant. Have you mm -hmm. stopped doing that, or are you continuing that due to the, um, the rise in food prices? Because that has to be interesting. No, yeah, exactly. No, I haven't stopped because I think the only thing I know how to do is buffet. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, because growing up in a large family, I know how to cook big part of food as opposed to cook little, you know, it, it, and it's weird because if you tell me to cook for two people, I will end up cooking for 10 because I'm so used to cooking a lot. So buffet is just perfect for me as opposed to a la carte plated, you know, I prefer the buffet. But yes, it's been hard. But then if you are a chef like me, I am very, very creative. So I can turn water into lemonade, you know, kind of stuff. And so I started doing more vegetables and I find healthy food that are very, not very expensive and make it real, really tasty. And so that kind of even off, you know, what we do. And I try to put more vegetables and on, on the menu because people need vegetables. And now you can find that least expensive and, and the meats are very expensive. So we kind of substitute for that. So it's really not too bad because I know how to flip, you know, over to just vegetables if I have to, or, you know, and less meat. So it's, 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 it's hard, but it's not as bad you know, with the buffet style, yeah. This is your third location in Richmond, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah, you were on Broad Street? Yes, originally? for 11, 11 years. Okay. So how did you get to Richmond? Because that means 26 years of operating a restaurant here. And then I heard there was a hot dog cart in there somewhere. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and, then and then the restaurant you are now. So Walk us through how you got to Richmond. I got to Richmond by way of the uh, war in Liberia in 1980. The, war, the Civil War broke out. And I basically got thrown into the United States. I, it wasn't, I wasn't planning on coming. It was just a situation that I was in. And I got here with uh, just, just myself, my family were in the war, they were dying, my children, my parents, my sisters, everybody was just stranded. And I was able to get out through the American embassy. And when I landed in the United States, I didn't know anyone. I was sitting at the airport at the baggage section with an overnight bag and just crying. I didn't know where to go, I didn't know anyone. And this lady came over to me. She had on her uniform, her baggage uniform at JFK. And she said, are you okay? Why are you crying? And I said, I don't have anyone in the United States and I don't know where to go. She said, how do you get here? I said, you know, and I crying and explaining. And she said, come home with me. Ooh, yeah, yeah. And um, she was Jamaican and she, and she lived in Brooklyn and she told me, <laughs> This is a very, very strange story. And she took me to a house in the heart of Brooklyn, in the, well, I don't want to use the word ghetto, but like in the hardcore of Brooklyn. 
And I had never been to the United States before, so I didn't know what to expect. And she kept saying, don't look down, don't look back. And she's telling me all these things not to do. And we're going through the alley and we're in the subway and, and I'm shaking, I'm holding my pocket. She said, hold your pocketbook tight. Don't look people in the eyes. And she's saying these things. And I'm like, is this my America, you know, that I dream about? And we get there and she, we're going up the stairs. She's on like the sixth floor in the elevator, not working. And so we're coming up the stairs and we're seeing Wino leaning. And I'm like, oh, is this, you know? And then all of a sudden, it, my whole dream about, it, about America was like collapsing in front of my eyes because I'm like, oh, is this it? And then we go in and she has these locks on her door, like click, 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 all the way from the top to the bottom. I mean, huge locks, you know, locking us in. And I was like, I couldn't even understand because growing up in Liberia, America is like paradise to Liberia. I mean, we grew up just knowing that America is like the mother to Liberia. So we dream about coming to the United States one day. And so for my first experience to see this, I was like traumatized. Was like, so then she said, well, I gotta go to work. So don't open the door for anyone. Uh, and so I stayed with her for like a week and then I started trying to search around for family members that I knew. And then I had a cousin in Queens and they came and got me. And that's how I basically wow. came to the United States. That is a story. So <laughs> you mentioned that a lot of your family was unable to come over. What, why were you able to come over? What's the story there? It, well, it was... I'm trying to remember. I had a friend that worked for the embassy and she and the United States government was sending the citizens uh, back, you know, every time there's a war or anything, they remove their citizens and everything. And so she was able to get me in with a new passport and everything to get in at that time. And so I came in with her as a child. During that time, her sister during that time. So that's how I was able to leave. What are your memories of living in Liberia? My memories were with my grandmother. My grandmother was my deepest, not only influence, but inspiration. When I was five years old, I, I knew all along that, uh, that cooking was going to be a major part of my adult life, but I just didn't know how, where, it was, where I was going to be and how it was going to manifest. And I, my grandmother was also a very good cook. She had two, she was an entrepreneur, had three businesses, a bakery. Uh, she was a seamstress. I mean, she just did everything. And I lived partially with her when I was a child and she had this huge garden. And I used to go out and just collect herbs, spices, ground it, smell it. But I really didn't know the names of all those things. I was, you know, five, six, seven years old. And I would prepare meals and take it to her. And she would just freak out. I was like, oh, grandma, I made dinner for you. And she would be like, Ew, yeah. And it was just, yeah. That's they what were my in, kids do right now to me, yeah, by the way. Yeah, the same, they were in like tin cans. Yeah, tin yeah. cans. And she would be all excited. I would bring it to her. And then she, she would say, oh, I'm so hungry. And I said, grandma, eat your dinner. And then she would say, oh, look over there. There's a bird. And when I turn my head, and then she would say, oh, I finished eating everything. <laughs> I ate it all. And I would be so excited. You ate it all, grandma? She said, yeah, I was so stuffed. And she said, what do, you, what do you have in here? And I was like, one taste, like, one smell like rose, one smell like flower. But I really didn't know. But my grandmother was the one that actually started training me when I hit when I became 10 years old I remember I used to ask her all the time when will I start cooking with you grandma she said not now not now when I turned 10 years old she put an apron on me and gave me a cooking spoon that day was the day that I knew that I was going to be a cook just the apron and the spoon was in my hand. It transformed my whole idea of what I wanted to do in my life. And when I went in the kitchen with her, I stood near on a stool and she prepared a, a chicken stew. And I said, well, can I write the ingredients down? She said, no, no, just remember it. And a week later, she asked me to prepare that same dish at age 10. And I started crying right away because I didn't know. She said, no, you can do it. 
And I did it, but I added some of the same little spices that I did from the garden that she didn't know. So when she tasted, she said, it tastes a little bit different. What do you have in there? I said, I don't know, but I think I added something else. She said, go in the garden and bring to me what you added in the stew. And today it was thyme and basil at age 10. I remember thyme and basil. And today, I, those are the two main uh, herbs that I love, uh, spices, thyme and basil is my favorite. And she said, yes, you are ready. And when I turned 13, my dad, my household was 11 people living in my household and my dad made me the chef in my household at age 13. I was feeding 11 people, throwing the menus, the budget, everything at 13. And I knew that this was it. There wasn't anything else that I ever wanted to do in my life. And I said this to everyone, if I die and had to come back in any form, I would be doing the same thing because this is all I know and this is all I love to do. That's a sign of a, a life well lived, I would say. Yes, yes, yes. I, I really love it. But I had also, as I, for the past 25 years, I, I have found myself moving into a lane that I really wanted to stay in. And that lane is being very, feeding people with healthy food. I wanted to be the chef that will heal you with the food by natural herbs and spices. Now, if I come to your restaurant, if A, it's pay by the pound, which I think is an amazing way to be able to navigate through everybody's budget. So thank you for that. Um, what would you suggest on your bucket? And it changes daily, doesn't it? Yes. What What would you suggest that I not miss if I I don't eat particularly healthy? I mean, I do, but let's say I don't. What would you suggest I eat so I can move towards the path of eating healthier with good food? Well, the first thing I will ask you if you are vegetarian or do you eat meat or I might ask you if you have certain allergies. Sometimes like people don't eat peanuts and stuff like that, which we don't cook anyway, but people have a couple of allergies they would have. But one of the things that I will stare you in is mainly the vegetables. I will start you off with vegetables. And I've done that with customers. I'll look at the tray and I would say to them, I don't see any vegetables on your tray. And it would be like, well, I got little greens right here. I'm like, no, you got stars, 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 stars. You need a little bit more vegetables. And sometimes I would send them back to the buffet and say, take some spinach. It's good for you. <laughs> and they're like, well, I don't like spinach. I'm like, yeah, I know, but just take a little bit. It's really, really good for you. And so sometimes, and then sometimes they would ask me, Chef, what do you suggest? I'm not feeling well today, or I just need some comfort food. And I would suggest vegetables all the time to them. Eat more of that and then less meat. So sure, I, sure. Yeah, but I, so... Scott, tell me about this spinach and rice. How was it? <laughs> well, so again, Chef was very gracious to have us in there to try all the food. So I didn't want to like uh, overpower my plate with one with one thing in particular. So the spinach and rice was spicy and delicious. Also had the mac and cheese. I had the plantains. I had a lot of I had a lot of starches too. I think, yeah. came, I, think I think you came to my, my my table and told me to eat more more vegetables. Um, the salmon. We had the salmon, which was out of this park knocked it out of this park and the desserts <laughs> yeah <laughs> the desserts yeah. just kept on coming around <laughs> and i kept on raising my hand and saying yes i'll try that I'll try. There, there was some, some vegan cake i remember yes yes and some and some not vegan cake and yeah yeah, yeah. it all went sweet potato cake into me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it all went into me with, with no problem what um for the folks that have never been to your restaurant you said that you wanted to represent different parts of Africa. Pretend like I'm a third grader, which in many respects I am when it comes to, when it comes to food. He is a third grader. <laughs> what, 
what makes West African cooking different from South African cooking, from North African cooking? What, what are some of the hallmarks of each region? Well, the staple mostly of West Africa is rice. Uh, and the staple of East or South would be corn. And so once you have the staple and then you work the sauces around it, like a rice dish will have, or rice will have maybe multiple dishes that will go with rice, as well as corn dishes. They do it in different ways and they have the sauces that go with it. So that's the difference. We don't eat a lot of corn stables, but we eat rice, which is the, the difference. And also West African countries have more variety of foods than then I would say East or maybe South because, and I will focus more on Liberia because I know of that uh, more. When the slaves went back from the United States, they, what, the, what the slaves took back, we created more dishes from it, like collard greens. Collard greens in the United States is probably cooked one, I won't say one way, but a way that everybody knows, steam it, boil it, pork, whatever in the South. But we took collard greens and we have five different ways to prepare collard greens. Uh, uh, so we took the same southern dishes that the slaves took back, but we made it more healthy and we had made it spicier. And so that's what I've done in so many ways in the restaurant. I try to give them things that they're familiar with, but with African twist. What are the five ways that you all prepare collard greens? Okay, so one, you can steam, you know. First of all, we use the fresh collard greens and we chop it up, not chop, but actually shred it. And we also use the leaves from the cabbage, you know, the green cabbage that you throw the green leaves away, those are probably the best. <laughs> and so we shred those leaves, we add those leaves to the collard greens, make so you got this little sweet taste from the cabbage leaves into the greens. And you can steam it with peppers and onions and just do like almost like a salad or steamed salad. Or you can add, you can cook it down and add shrimp to it or chicken or whatever and cook it down. You can kind of take it to another level by adding palm oil, fish, and then, and then every time you add something else to it, it becomes something else and it tastes different. So, sure. so you can take collard greens any way you, any way you want to take it. I, I love a collard green any way you want to give it to me. So <laughs> I, I am for a collard green. Uh, I remember, so the last time I was at your restaurant was at the other spot, and you do something to fish. I, I don't know how you do it, but I had a fish dish there, a white fish. Tell me, okay, you love the salmon, Scott. You, you saute the fish? What do you do to the fish to make it so delicious? Yes, we do, and we do something called curry fried fish. And we, so we marinate the uh, filet, you know, in my special curry sauce, which I'm not going to explain all of that right now. <laughs> I can oh, send dang. it to you later. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, that's what I want. I, I yeah, like the secret I can, recipe yeah, sends. I can secret it to you later. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but we marinate it in our special curry sauce and let it sit, you know, overnight. And then we fry it. But we use a, the, uh, my breading that we use is a little bit different because we add some special corn flour into it also and we fry it in vegetable oil. So that's why it's so tasty because it's already marinated. Ah, I just remember thinking to myself, this is so good. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not just thrown into a batter and then fried. Sure, it spends some time getting itself together. In yeah, yeah, most of the meats that we use are marinated in whatever spices that we want to use before we uh, bake it or fry it or cook it. I want to touch back. You mentioned when you first landed in America, things were not great. And this woman met you at the airport or found you at the airport and kind of took you under her wing. I'm wondering if there's any parallel being in Richmond for so long for some of the students that come over uh, from Africa to study in town that don't have family here, that don't have friends here. Have you found yourself 
becoming that person to put people under your wing? Yes, when I because I was the first one that came, I became the uh, the uh, Rosa Parks of my family. I bought a house maybe five five years after I moved to Richmond that had uh, four bedrooms. And as my family came, I would house them for three, four months, help them get on their feet, and then move them out. And so I did that for about 10 years. So I did that with friends and family because they would come to the United States, have no friends, nobody, and they were moving with me. And I had the, the restaurant at a time, so they would work in the kitchen, and I would get them on their feet, get their papers, whatever, and then they would move on. And I did that with a lot of uh, Liberians as well. But I haven't had the opportunity to meet any other nationality that fell under that category as, as yet. Uh, and I think probably I will. Even and one of the reasons why I decided to do the cooking school for girls, that was one of the things I wanted to help them with. Not necessarily uh, coming from another place. You can be right here and it would be another place. And so that's why I wanted to help these young girls, age 11 to 16, try to harness their gifts. And a lot of them had it, but they just needed someone to bring it out. So you don't have to come from another space. You can be in the same space and be from somewhere else mentally, you know, and that's how a lot of them are right here. They are in the same space, but mentally they're not here. Talk a little bit more about the cooking school. How, what, what is it called? How do people learn more? And uh, what are some of the lessons um, that you teach? Right now, the cooking school is on hold. We probably will, will start it maybe next year once we set it in. And one of the reasons why we had stopped because the kitchen was too small and the school started growing and I needed a real nice big commercial kitchen. And now I have it. So we're going to reopen the school. And the reason why I took the age 11 to 16, because that age group, they just, they're not really adults and they're not really adolescents. They're in that middle age where you can actually mold them. Because once they pass 16, then sometimes it's difficult. And when they're too young, they can't really learn as much as I want. And my cooking school was a real cooking school where they actually went in the kitchen and prepared meals. And they went to the grocery stores. They did tour in the grocery store, learn vegetables, you know, because a lot of times they didn't know what a mango was or these uh tropical uh, vegetables, they didn't know those things. And those were the things that I wanted to teach them. And also, one of the things that were very important in the cooking school was their diet. A lot of the kids didn't drink water and water was nasty, as they put it. And, and so we talk about water and in, in, in how important it is in a young woman's life growing up. And so all of that were part of the school, uh, cooking school. We did a lot of mentoring because they, they were set back. They really didn't want to cook. They just wanted to eat. And I tried to explain to them, you don't have, well, when I become, oh, when I get married, I'm not, I will have a cook. I'm not going to cook. I say, you don't have to cook. You just have to know how to do it so that you can tell your cook what you want. And you don't be at the mercy of your cook. You know, so you can tell her what you want. You don't necessarily have to cook it. And so I had to teach them to see above cooking because sometimes people think that the, the culinary art of cooking is one of the lowest art. And it is one of the, the, the highest because the culinary art is so important that we feed you and we can also kill you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. We can give you good food and we can give you bad food. Okay. We know how to do that. I thought you meant like. <laughs> no, no, no. We know how to get you good food and we know how to get you bad food because that's what we do. And so the art is really important because we feed the mind, body and spirit. So once you have healthy food in your body, the body responds to it. If the food is bad, the body rejects it. And so sometimes you might eat something and you get a headache and you be like, I don't know why I have such a bad headache. Then you have to think that, yeah, I just ate pork <laughs> and it's not really good for me. Or like for me, I'm allergic to peanuts. 
And my body tells me that I love peanuts. But every time I look at it, the mind will say, you know, we don't eat peanuts, though. <laughs> you know what it would do. And I would be like, man, I love peanuts. No, we don't eat peanuts. You know what it would do. I'll be like, yeah, I love peanuts. And then soon as you eat it, and then acne is, I told you we don't eat peanuts, right? <laughs> now, so the body will tell you what it can take and what it can. We just have to listen to it. We just have to know ourselves, know our body and what it wants. And I always tell people, do not eat if you are not hungry. I've had people come in the restaurant, it's lunchtime, but I'm not hungry. Then don't eat. <laughs> Only eat when you're hungry. Send them home. Come back yeah. tomorrow. It's 12 o'clock. It's lunchtime. I'm supposed to eat, but I'm not hungry. Don't eat. Right. Eat only when you're hungry. Eat only when the body tells you it needs nutrition. Because it, the body doesn't need a whole lot. We just stuff ourselves and just do what we're not supposed to. It doesn't need a lot. It's just nutrition. It doesn't need a lot. And it will tell you when it's full. And you stop when it's full. <laughs> Put it outside and wait and eat it another time. <laughs> Chef, I need to speak with you every single day because <laughs> I just eat because I want to, not because I need to, not because it's the right time, because the back of Doritos is in front of me. Yeah. And I'm just going to eat them. So I think yeah. I need, can I set up a call with you like five yeah, minutes yeah. every, every morning just to give me the motivation yes. that I need? I love yes, you. Thank you very yes. much. Yes. I love her motivation, Scott. Good stuff in means good stuff out. Out. And Break when you aren't hungry. Yes. Just punch the brakes. Punch no. the brakes. Yeah. <laughs> when you're not hungry, don't eat it. You can you can order it. You can wait until the body tells you I am ready to eat. And then you eat. And when you do that, I'm telling you, you will be fulfilled because you are ready to eat. But when you don't, you got the food in front of you, you take two or three spoons and you fall and you're like, man, I can't eat them because it wasn't time for you to eat. <laughs> I eat one time a day. And people ask me why I eat at night. And, not, and that is unusual because a lot of people can't eat. And the reason why I eat at night is because my body is totally empty, my stomach, and it's ready for food. You don't get in a bad mood? No. And I eat three pounds of food a day only. Only three pounds. And sometimes a pound a day only. And, and that's it. I don't, and I eat well, but I don't, during the day, I might because I stay so long in the restaurant from 10 to 10. So maybe after seven hours or so, I might just nibble on something, you know, because the hunger starts, but I really don't eat at all. I just walk around, walk around. And sometimes the food makes me full. I sniff the, the aroma and get full, especially when I'm cooking, I could like, and I inhale those spices and it keeps me going. So let's talk about your day from 10 to 10 at the restaurant. You come in and do what? What do you start with? I, well, let's say, let's go back before I got this great chef that I have in the kitchen that I trained. I have a clone in my kitchen now. And I love her. And she that's why is, she had the school, the cooking yeah, school. She, she is was yes, training she her is, next to Yes, chef. she is actually my clone. She does everything like me. She does everything I tell her to do. And she helps me a lot. So what I, is her name? Sophia. It's Sophia. her name. It's her name. <laughs> I told her, I said, Sophia, when you retire, I'm going with you because <laughs> I can't do this anymore. And so Sophia comes in at eight and starts, well, at seven o'clock and starts, you know, she knows exactly because I make the menu before every night and I leave it for her to prepare. And she uh, starts and I get here about maybe 10 because sometimes I have to do a little, you know, running around picking up stuff before I get in. And once I get in, Sophia has already done half of what and I just go in. <laughs> make sure turn turn the pot around and She's make sure yeah and make sure that it's tight the spices are right and if it's not i let her know no you need to add a little bit more of this of that and then sometimes she battled with me like no you told me not to do it i said Sophie, you, can, 
you can compromise. You can put this in there. No, 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 no. You told me to do it this way. So she is straight to the money. And, and, and I think that's the reason why our customers keep coming back because the food is consistent. I've had people say, chef, I haven't been in a restaurant for years, but I came back and the food is just the way I left it 10 years ago. Because we are very consistent and I tell them that this is the reason why McDonald's and other places are so successful. Because regardless of how they call the burger, it's still that McDonald's burger. I don't care what you say, they can call it any other name. It's the <laughs> burger. Yeah, yeah. So the food is consistent and that's what brings people back all the time. You know, and, and the thing, and another thing is that when it changes, they tell me, Chef, you I don't think you cook the grains today. I said, What do you mean? It don't have that oomph in it. It's always used to wear oomph. It don't have that oomph in it. I'm like, what that means? I can't say, but it's just. And then I'll go back in the kitchen and then I would taste it and I would go, okay, I know what is missing, that oomph. And then we just put it right in, put the oomph in. <laughs> Grab the oomph off the shelf, put the oomph in. Yeah, put the oomph in. <laughs> that's her new spice. Um, you know, that's going to be yeah. her new spice selection. Man, it's going to be, yeah, Ida's oomph. We're all going to be buying containers of oomph. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the oomph to that one, I was like, oh, okay, let's go here, see what Here happens. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's oomph. <laughs> but you know, I sell the spices though, so I really sell the oomph. People come in and buy the spices a lot, so I sell it. Do you sell the spices you use? I don't think I knew that. Oh, that's yes, great to know. We do. We sell the spices in the restaurant and the customers still call it the oomph. I put it on anything, chef, anything in my kitchen. I say, yeah, it's the oomph. <laughs> That's how it goes. Well, let's, so we have, you have more seats now in the old, um, in the new building. You're like up what, to 40, 45 you have yes, now? Yes, yeah, somewhere around there. And I heard there is um, a new baker, perhaps. Yes, that is my doing some sister. Of your stuff. My sister is now my partner, my baby sister. And so she's doing all the baking. So all the cake that he was eating was fake Victoria's cakes. Yeah, she does all the pies and the cakes in the kitchen now. So she's the baker. So I can come in and so for almost, I'd say almost 30 years, you've been doing per the pound. I think it's the cheapest per pound excuse me, it's the most budget friendly per pound food in Richmond at around yes. what is it still seven something? Seven ninety-nine a pound. Seven ninety-nine wow. a pound. It was six ninety-six ninety-nine. Well it was four ninety-nine, then it went to six ninety-nine for fifteen years. It was the Gosh. same price. So when we moved over, we just added a dollar more to seven ninety-nine. You you deserve it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well food costs went up. That was sure. probably one of the reasons. <laughs> Yeah, but seven ninety nine is. I think that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, and you can get a real nice plate for a pound. And I try to tell my customers that. And sometimes the ones that I really can talk to when they bring their food and weigh, and they have like two pounds or two and a half pounds, I'll say to them, "Look, three pounds is your limit for the day. You got two and a half when you go home eat a salad. Do not eat." <laughs> Do not eat a meal again. You already had it for lunch. Just go home and eat a light salad and go to bed. That would make you three pounds. Life coach is your next job, chef. Yeah, you, yeah, you are a yeah. Life Vegetables coach. are lighter. Yes, Vegetables yes, are lighter. lighter. And I tell them, I made it. And I said, are you going to eat all of this? Oh, yeah, I'm going to sit here and eat it all. I said, all right, this is a pound, two pounds. And sometimes they're coming to the scale and they're doing their hands like this. Chef. I think I got too much food and it's shaking because they know I'm going to say something and they put it on the skip. Boom. And like, oh, Lord, chef, she's going to get mad at me. I'm eating two pounds of food for lunch. And I'm like, where are your vegetables? Uh, go back and get some vegetables. You don't even have to pay for it. Eat it. <laughs> and I so, love it. And so, but these are customers that I can talk to that way. Not everyone. Okay, so if Scott's coming in next time uh -huh. and he's getting food yes. and you get to choose what's on his plate. Yes, yes. What are you putting on his plate? Cake, pie, okay. what else? <laughs> Scott was going to start off with spinach. I keep saying spinach. Spinach is very good because it's very high in iron. 
it keep your iron control. And a lot of times people are very low in iron and they don't know why. So spinach, 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 kale, spinach all day long. So I gave you your spinach and I will give you plantains. Plantains are very high in potassium. And even though it's a starch, even though it's not a veg, it's not a fruit, it's a vegetable. So I will give you spinach and I will give you plantains. I might give you a little bit of rice, but not much. And I will give you some a piece of baked chicken, maybe, or a piece of fish. But I will give you vegetables, collard greens, mostly maybe one meat. I will not give you mac and cheese. Not that it's not good, but I wouldn't give it to you. <laughs> Can I have the pie at least? Uh, I will give you the coconut pie. Deal. I'll take it. I won't give you the sweet potato, but I will give you the coconut tarts. <laughs> or the sweet potato cake, yeah. Spinach and coconut tarts. You're listening to Eat It Virginia with Chef Ida Mamusu, Scott, and Roby. What an inspirational story she just told. Oh my gosh. I mean, could you imagine just flying to this country, not knowing anybody, landing, crying in the middle of an airport? Getting picked up by someone you don't know, and then being, oh gosh, I mean, man. No, I can't imagine it. And I'm just, I'm super, super grateful that she got to Richmond. She's an inspiration and you're getting emotional. And uh, yep. <laughs> thank you, Chef, for taking that time to speak with us today because more people need to hear your story. So where have you been, Scott? I feel like I haven't seen you in, well, I haven't seen you in a while. And there's been like tie-dye on your Instagram and chocolate and more tie-dye and then some people dancing and then some lights and then. During the height of the pandemic, as I sat on my couch and watched old fish concerts over and over and over again, I made a promise to myself that I would not dig up excuses to not travel this country to see my favorite live music ever again. So when Fish announced the, the summer tour, there were six shows that made sense for me to travel to, and I just did it. I did two nights in Atlanta, two nights in Nashville, two nights in Hershey. I saw old college friends. I saw old camp friends. I saw old high school friends. I took my children to a couple of concerts. What did you eat? <laughs> oh my gosh, ate so well. Um, Atlanta, the shows in Atlanta were kind of in the suburbs. So we ate, it was like eating in the suburbs, just chain stuff. Drove to Nashville and ate at Hattie B's hot Nashville chicken. Ugh! I ordered the damn hot sandwich. And the guy looked at me like I was an idiot because it was 100 degrees outside and we would be dancing all night in the concert. And yes, it was pretty, um, it was delicious, but very uh, painful. Also ate at Biscuit Love, which is in that trendy Nashville neighborhood. The Gulch, I think it's called. The Gulch. And loved that meal as well. Uh, in Hershey, well, guess what? We ate chocolate. Lots and lots of chocolate. <laughs> That's the one I brought my kids to. We went to the theme park, went to two concerts. The theme park was hot, but amazing. It stormed both days. We ran through the rain. We laughed. We cried. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And on the way out of town, on the way back to Richmond, we stopped at the Turkey Hill Experience. Are you familiar with this? No, but I'm ready for you to tell me. Turkey Hill, obviously the dairy, the ice cream. You see it in grocery stores. They had this whole museum slash interactive experience where you go, you milk mechanical cows, you uh, make your own flavors, you make your own uh, ice cream containers, and then you can pay a little extra and you can sit in a half an hour class. They, talk, they teach you how they make their ice cream, and then you get to make your own ice cream. They give you vanilla so ice cream, cool. like, like a base of vanilla, and then you um, have a little flavor, like uh, droppers. You can drop different flavors in and then mix, mix in you know, chocolate chips or M&Ms or Reese's Pieces, things like that. And then uh, also like a, like a tube of more flavoring. So anyway, you stir it all up and, and you make your own ice cream. It was, it was a fun time had by all and a stomach ache for four and a half hours home <laughs> the drive through DC traffic, which by the way, still sucks. Ah, uh, that's not surprising. Uh, poor, well, I'm glad that the up to the leading to the DC traffic was good. Yeah, um, and, so, well, and I did, and by the way, I did see, believe it or not, the, the, the main chef for the rock band Fish is kind of busy 
during fish tour. No so, way. <laughs> so we exchanged texts back and forth in, a, in few, a few different cities. I felt like the jilted lover. That was a humble just, brag, guys, if you guys missed it. The main chef for fish, we exchanged text back and forth because. Oh, such but. a humble brag. Wait till I tell you. So Jim <laughs> Hamilton, the, uh, the owner of Sukasa Burritos here in town, is also the touring chef for fish. We interviewed him last year. I asked him all my fish questions. But anyway, I'm texting him through all these cities like, hey, Jim, hey, Jim. And he's like, busy, busy, busy. I felt <laughs> like, uh, like I was being ghosted. But on the very last night, uh, we were able to rendezvous. As we were leaving the concert, he was over by like, the tour buses. And we were able to meet, exchange an elbow bump, and just say hello to each other and set a future date for back when he's back in town and off tour. So I'm looking forward to Oh, that. nice. Yeah. That's so cool. fun. So while I, while I am eating ice cream and chocolate, you are eating tomatoes? So let's see, what have I done? It has not been traveling, but I have done some real good Richmond food stuff. So I went to the opening of Pinkies, which is right there in the old urban farmhouse. And as you are aware, I not, was not or still am not a big fan of urban farmhouse. So I can't think of anything better to be open there. Um, the meal is amazing. It's beautiful in there. Get in there and have the lamb pop us immediately immediately, which are lamb on top of potatoes, but in a different way that you probably would be um, expecting. Okay. Yeah. Immediately take a date or family. It's kid friendly. The whole thing is great. It's absolutely fantastic. I did the Indie Chef's dinner. I mean, I know you and I went to an Indie Chef's dinner a couple of years ago where they had that whole thing happen again this past weekend. And I went to a pop-up with Farrell Alvarez and Brittany Anderson. Farrell is out of Florida. Brittany, obviously, Virginia. Metzger, Brenner Pass. And they had that at Metzger. It was kind of tiki themed. Had the best cobia collar I've had in a long time. You know, big fish, big neck. So I had a little piece of its neck. Delicious, delicious, delicious. A couple other great things. A mochi donut, which is something that if you ever get the opportunity, you should take it. Then I went to the actual physical dinner with a friend of ours, a friend of the podcast, Elaine Chon Baker, and she, who was also a part um, investor in ZZQ. She and I, she was so delightful as a date. And I met like every chef who was here for the indie chef's dinner. Um, were, were these chefs from from the TV show, from Top Chef, or these lots of Top yeah, Chefs? Nice, yes, nice. lots and lots of chefs. So Avishar and Paula, and I mean, just many, many individuals from all over the nation. And we had a delightful alfresco evening with fun thing. It was, I think, Michael Smith as he's moved on from Common House to Native Selections Wine. I think maybe it was one of his first wine dinner pairings, and they were. I'm just gonna say it brilliant you can beep bleep that if you'd like he did a fantastic job had a great sparkling a couple of good whites and a real nice red I'm oh and i had a blue cider a blue cider yeah the color the flavor the, the cup what's what's blue about it the actual cider is blue it's a cider seltzer and it's made by a cidery that's about an hour away from richmond and i would like to suggest while the color is amazing the cider tastes like drinking plastic moving right along then how was the tomato farm so great so we were invited at you and i were invited out to the village garden farm to see those lovely eggs um, that were on the podcast, what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? That's right. Four weeks ago, eight weeks ago. <laughs> it feels like everything. Dave and Barb, they, those two are amazing. And they're super, super busy. So I went out there to check out their last dinner, which was a whole roasted pig via Autumn Olive Farms. Um, nice. Double Tyler action. So a Tyler from Autumn Olive and another Tyler roasted it. And they are, this is the 100% honest to God truth swimming in tomatoes. And I learned about a new tomato, Scott. Tell me about it. Which one was it? Did you know that there is a tomato with peach fuzz on it? It's, it looks like a fuzzy peach, except it's a tomato and it's delicious. 
but that is an heirloom tomato that has like a fuzzy peach on it. It's a little sweeter if it's yellow, a little more tart if it's red. I've had both. <laughs> they, were, they were delicious. Uh, Barbersville provide the wine, so I got to chat a little bit with Luca, um, who is the winemaker at Barbersville, so hopefully we might be able to get him to come talk to us, because I love it when a winemaker comes on. I learn so much. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the big family reunion happening at the Salamander um, this upcoming weekend. So the That's the resort the in Northern Virginia? Yeah. It is, yes. Um, they're hosting some really great chefs and bakers and all other fun food individuals over there. Rodney Scott, Charleston, um, Sheila Johnson, who was, you know, the co-founder of BET and now is um, the only black woman on the Forbes five-star resort list, which I think is really neat, um, is doing a massive food festival called Family Reunion with, and I'm going to butcher his name, it's Kwame Onwachi along with, obviously, as I said, Rodney Scott, Carla Hall, who you're probably familiar with. Um, gosh, just like so many other people that whoever it is that owns Good Hot Fish in Asheville. I mean, just Don Burrell. I mean, it's just an amazing event taking us the span of those days, which you can go and eat great barbecue, go through seminars, just be immersed in um, food culture right here in the state of Virginia with some legendary names. And, and because I'm into food, obviously, this whole food family reunion is just like the most interesting and awesome thing for us to have happening in our state. What's the drive time for the Salamander? I know you've been a couple of times. I have, and it is a little over an hour and 30 minutes. So. Oh, that's not bad at all. No, I mean, if you hit a bunch of traffic, clearly it's going to be more, but it's not bad. So you really could go up for a day event and come back if you don't have too much fun and have to be sit down at, sat down in front of a bar with cheese and coffee. <laughs> so Scott, I feel like you may have predicted this. Truly, your love for desserts, you, you somehow, because you have such a good affinity for them, can just pick the spots that are, are, are going to blow up. I'm telling you, guys, if you have a dessert, it is Scott, you need to get to taste it because he if, seems to know his sweets. If desserts were stocks, I'd be the, uh, I'd be the man. I'd be, I'd be swimming in uh, millions right now. Dude, I'd bet on you if desserts were stocks. So did you hear about Rubia? Uh, Ruby Scoops is blowing up. It's, gonna go, <laughs> it's going national. There's going to be lines going all the way down Brooklyn Park Boulevard. Uh, it's... It's so hard to get into now sometimes. It's going to be even harder in a few weeks when Rabia makes her national television debut. I know. I know. I actually, so I saw that and I think, I actually think we should bring her back on the beginning of a podcast. I saw that and just was like, Scott, Rabia, you guys have got to stop. This is ridiculous. The so two for, of the folks, them. for the folks who don't know what we're talking about, Rabia, who owns Ruby Scoops, is going to be on the Food Network. Uh, an ice cream show that is sponsored by or features Ben and Jerry's also. Do you know any other details about this? I, I don't, I think they're pretty hush hush, but I'm hoping she gets to create a Ben and Jerry's flavor. And I'm, that, that's like really what I'm hoping the whole thing is. And then she gets to make money off that Ben and Jerry's flavor. And then she gets to be famous. And then she, we can just say her, we knew, we knew her when she was at Brooklyn Park Boulevard. It couldn't happen to a nicer person. We're so happy for her and for her business and wish her nothing but success and the best. Y'all got a secret. I think Scott has a tiny crush on Rabia, but don't tell her. It's not a secret. <laughs> this episode of Eat It Virginia. Eat It Virginia? <laughs> this episode of Eat It Virginia. <laughs> no! Oh, God, no.